Good morning, greetings in Jesus' name, and welcome here this morning. Thinking about this, I think the mic at this church has been a relatively recent addition. I think my first years here, this mic was not here, and so we we just had to speak up, I guess, then. Um, but then again, the congregation wasn't quite as big either, so maybe that was helpful. I have heard of uh, people preaching through interpreters, so... The man says a sentence, and then the interpreter says a sentence. Maybe this morning we'll have to get somebody up here with volume, and I'll say a sentence, and the man with volume can say a sentence. We can get through it that way too, I guess. But anyway, I guess uh, this morning, if you're in the back and you can't hear, you now have an excuse to sleep, I guess. So there you go. Come with me to Second Timothy, if you would. going to read a very familiar um, verse here, refer, refer to at times, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. And this is a verse that is breaking into a broader thought process, but for the sake of time this morning, I'm not going to read the context. I'm just going to read this verse. It says, for God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The title this morning that I have for this this talk is Developing and Maintaining a Sound Mind. Now, it, it's I didn't realize it's going to be just a little bit of an extension of the Sunday School lesson. Um, the, the people in today's Sunday School lesson did not exemplify soundness of mind to the degree that they should have and could have. Um, And that lack of soundness of mind uh, dogged them the rest of the days of the children of Israel. Those Gibeonites were always there because of a lack of a sound mind. I'm also aware that in different translations, this, this, um, these two words in our King James that is translated sound mind is translated self-discipline, virtue, self-control, discreet, temperate, sober. There's different ways you could translate it. The King James calls it a sound mind. If you go to the root word of the um, of that uh, the Greek root word, it would it would it would say a safe mind, a, a, a mind that is moderate in opinion and passion. I'm not a horseman, but occasionally when we get into into Lancaster County for uh, a way to pass some time and and uh, experience culture, it's not uncommon for me and my boys to go to the New Holland sales barn and watch the horse sale. And uh, it's, it's kind of odd because I really have no interest in horses beyond the horse sale. But but it's an, it's an interesting culture and interesting to watch that. And, and one of the things that you will hear more than once that day, if you sit there any length of time, they'll bring the horse in and say, this horse is safe and sound. And I assume what that means is that for a, a poor man like me that knows nothing of a horse, he'd probably be a good one for me to buy because I, I, would, I would take that he would be a horse I could take home, and I, would, and, and I would expect he wouldn't buck me off his back immediately anyway. Safe and sound. And so it's important that we as Christians possess minds 
that are safe and sound, that we can objectively analyze situations, come to conclusions that are safe, and that will produce good results. I don't need to tell you this, but we live in a culture, a godless culture, uh, increasingly godless, and our culture does not express soundness of mind, does it? Uh, you know that. I don't have to elaborate that. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing what passes for good judgment these days, and it's probably anything but good judgment. Um, somewhere recently, I read in the news that um, there was a baseball card, a Mickey Mantle baseball card that sold for $12.5 million. And that, that shocked me when I read that. Um, because, again, I would say that is one small example of somebody that did not have soundness of mind. Who would, for a small baseball card with a picture of a man that now no longer lives, and he spent his days batting a ball and catching balls, and someone would pay $12.5 million for that? To me, that seems like an unsound mind. Well, we can identify that in a broader society, can't we? But my concern is, how sound is my mind? Can I trust my mind? Do I have the tools to, that, I, that, I feel, that I feel my mind is at a place where I can trust it, I can make decisions, that I can fortify myself and make wise and, uh, and prudent decisions with the mind that God has give me, given me. If I begin to explore this subject in the scripture, I will say that I was, um, I was amazed at how many times the Bible, particularly the New Testament, speaks to this issue of our minds. It was quite overwhelming, and as a matter of fact, I quickly began to, to understand that there's no way I will exhaust this subject this morning. The, uh, the, 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 the mind and how we use them is spoken to so many times in the New Testament, and our spiritual success is tied very much to it. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 6. We're going to start here, and um, I want to just do a little bit of comparison here. So let's go to Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5. Now, this, this particular um, uh, verses 4 and 5, this particular, these verses, or what's contained in these verses, is known as the Jewish Shema, or it's, it would be the confession of faith for the, for the Jews. Even to this day, your Orthodox Jews would, would esteem the, these words very highly. And it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Okay? Now turn with me to Mark 12. Mark chapter 12. This is recorded in several of the Gospels, but we're going to read it out of Mark here. Mark chapter 12 and verse 28. We're going to start there. And one of the scribes came, and having heard him, them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, 
The first of all the commandments is, and he, he says the Shema here, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now pay attention to what he says here, how he finishes this. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love the neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself, is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus saw he had answered discreetly, and he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask him any questions. Now, if you were paying attention, and you may have picked this up, you might not have, but if there's a little nuance between these two uh, passages that I just read, in the Old Testament passage, there was no mention of the mind. In the New Testament, there is. It says, you shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you look at the other passages in the New Testament where Jesus quotes the Shema, it's the same thing. He includes the, the word mind. Now, there's, a, there's some, in, in the Bible, if you take the Bible as a whole and you would read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you would see sometimes that the heart and the mind are usually, are sometimes used somewhat interchangeably. And so there might be some of that going on here. But I'm going to suggest that maybe it was intentional. Maybe there was a little, a little addition here that Jesus um, uh, added whenever he quoted the Shema here. I'm not sure. I don't want to make too big of a deal out of that. But it is interesting to me that, at least in our translation here, and I believe that it would go back to the Greek, there is this addition. Now, as it's used here, as I tried to parse this out, the heart is would mean the whole inner part of a man. It is the focus and determination of the mind, and it includes the response of the emotions. So in other words, the emotions play a part in the decision-making process, whereas the mind is the part of us that rationalizes, analyzes, and makes decisions, and it's somewhat the same as the heart, but it has minimal emotion attached. Okay, does that make sense? It's, it's basically how much the emotion is attached to the decision-making process. Think of it like this. When we make a, a heart-based choice, we are basing our choice, we're giving strong weight to the emotional part of it. When we make decisions with our mind, we are taking out the emotion and we are making decisions without much weight to emotion at all. That is why... It is advisable, any, any person that um, uh, has his wits about him anyway, would, it, would advise that if a person's in a deeply emotional point in their lives, there's, there's trauma in their lives, um, whatever, they're emotionally vulnerable for whatever reasons, that it's not advisable to make important decisions during that time because there's too much emotion involved to, to think clearly, to be clear-headed about things. And again, it's 
that's a little bit of the difference between a man and a woman. A woman is more emotionally driven, a man not so much. Uh, he he, he isn't, is inclined to allow his emotions to get involved in a decision-making process, which I believe is why God set up the home the way he did, the structure of the church the way he did, because we need these emotional people with us. We need our, our, our women, and they have, a, they have a, a, a vital part to play in our society, in our homes, in our churches, etc., but we play different roles and we approach things differently. And that's one of the, one of the, the big differences between the genders. I gave this illustration, um, I think a few months ago, and I can't even remember why I gave it, but I'm going to give it to you again. And so bear with me. But when I was thinking through this, my mind went way back to grade school, whenever we picked ball teams and we always got better ball teams whenever the boys picked the teams. That's because they were able to take the emotion out of it, and they picked teams based on the ability of the people they were picking from to play ball. No emotion attached. Whereas if the, if the ladies, if the girls picked the teams, it was about emotion. And we, wanted, we didn't want anybody to feel bad, and we, we wanted to have our friends on our team. And so the, the, the vital... Um, part of the whole picking process, whether you could play ball well or not, was very secondary to whether I wanted to make everyone feel good, okay? It not really, I'm not really knocking it. I'm just saying that was a reality of how things planned out. And most of the time our teachers were wise enough, they would pick two boys to go to a table and quietly pick the teams. So, no, so we, we, we took care of both problems. We had good teams without anybody feeling bad. But the absolute worst was when two girls stood up, picked teams, and called out the names because that, that, you're going to end up with bad teams. I hope you follow me there. That's, that's, that, that was making decisions based on the heart or ba- making decisions based on the mind. I would also point to a, uh, a scripture in, in, um, or an account in Luke 15, the prodigal son. His decision to leave his father's house and go to the far country and do what he did there squander his living on harlots and so on, that was an emotionally based decision. He was after something that felt good to him. But it said once he sat by the pig pen for a while and ate husks, it said, how does does the Bible say? It says he came to himself. He came to himself. And he began to make decisions based on his mind. See, I'm not saying that we should not give any weight to our emotions. And I'm not saying that we as men should be emotionless people and should never give any weight to that. There's definitely room for that. But in the context of this message, I'm going to make an appeal for mind-based decisions. Back to this thing of the difference between the Old Testament Shema and the New Testament Shema, or the way Jesus gave it, I'm going to suggest something here. In the Old Testament, we refer to that as the dispensation of the law. Paul says in Romans 7 that the law was there for the purpose of making men know their sinfulness. He said, I would not have known sin unless there was law. I can't be guilty of doing something that's wrong if I don't know it's wrong. If I don't know what the speed limit is on a given road, 
and I go over the speed limit, I may be breaking the law, but I don't know it. So did I really break the law? You see what I'm saying? That's kind of the argument that Paul was making there. He said, I didn't know that it was wrong to covet because there was no, there was no law about it. But when, when I came, when I confronted the law, I knew it. Just turn with me there. I want to get this in Romans 7 here. I want to uh, pick up on that thought process a little bit. So that's what he says there in verse 7. He said, is the law sin? No. He said, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law said, thou shalt not covet. Now, go over to verse 22. It says, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The point I want to make here is it seems like these verses here, 23 and 24, in my mind, is the plight of the person that was in the Old Testament or the person of today that is not completely surrendered to Christ. He has the ability to see the righteousness of the law, and there is maybe something about that. He's even attracted to that. He's attracted to the virtue and the the good things that law can bring to him. He has a desire for this. But there is a war going on, and that war is his fleshly desires are pulling against the law in his mind. So in his mind, he knows what's right, and he admires the law, but there's something inside of him that's pulling him, tugging him away from what he really wants. The fleshly desires are stronger and win on a regular basis. And then in verse 24, he talks about the the wretchedness of such a situation. It's a self-loathing, a defeated feeling, a desire to just give up. The Bible clearly outlines two options for the human race that live in this tension. We all, at some point, live in this tension. We're born with this. At some point, we understand the wretchedness of our condition. And at that point, we can either yield our lives to the Lordship of Christ so that we have the ability to bring the law of our members and the law of our mind into one reality so that they're walking on the same path. Or the opposite scenario is, the other option is, we can reason with our minds that the law of our members is the law by which we shall live. And therefore, we justify sinfulness in our lives as perfectly normal and acceptable. Now, these two scenarios are clearly laid out in the book of Romans. Flip over with me to to Romans 1. And you see the, the, the path of the second that I just described. So verse 18 says in Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Or we could word it like this, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then the rest of the chapter clearly outlines this progression of what happens from that point on. Note verse 21. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but they became vain or foolish 
in their imaginations, in their thought processes. And their foolish heart, or you could say their foolish mind, was darkened. They professed to be wise, but they became, they became fools. Then look at verse 24. Wherefore God gave them up to uncleanness, to work the lust of their own hearts, or you could say of their own minds. And, and we have a description here of the, of the uh, sexual vice and so on and the, the evils that they, that they um, get themselves into. And then in verse 28, we have another progression. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, in their minds, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient or aren't, aren't, um, th- th- that's not what people do. It's, it's not, it doesn't make sense. Now, the word reprobate there means worthless. So they have a worthless mind. It's totally good for nothing. They are not, they have come to a point where they are, Um, unable to make a good decision anymore. And then, this reprobate mind in verse 31, one of the things that you will see about a reprobate is that they're without understanding. In other words, their mental faculties aren't working. So, this is a a sad state of affairs for a person that gives in to the reason of the mind, and rather than give his life to Christ, and bring that law of his members into subjection, he gives into them, and this is the path that he will follow in the likely scenario for his life. Now, turn with me to Romans 12, and we have the opposite scenario. And you know this chapter very well, too. And I'm just going to read a few verses, starting at chapter, or verse 1 of chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by how? By the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And the rest of the book of Romans is pretty much a description of how that works out how it works out for a person that has this renewed mind and this mind that is constantly being renewed. It says the renewing of your mind. I truly believe that every day we are presented with very mundane and sometimes not very mundane, sometimes pretty big decisions. And and we have to make a decision. We have to work our minds. We, We have to make these decisions. And depending on how we choose, we'll, we'll, decide whether you have renewed your mind or whether you have become vain in your imagination. It it works both ways. There's either an upward progress or there's downward. And it's up to us how we're going to exercise these things. Turn with me yet to uh, Titus 3. I'm sorry about all these these scripture verses, but there's there's so many we could turn to. We're just trying to cherry pick a few here to, um, to help us understand this. And Titus... 3, in verse 4, it says, But after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration, and notice what else it says, and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. So we have the renewing of the mind that causes transformation, 
We have regeneration that comes by the renewing that we experience through the Holy Ghost. Do you suppose there's any connection there? Do you suppose a person without the Holy Ghost can ever experience a renewed mind or the renewing of the mind? Do you suppose that's possible? Do you suppose it's possible to have the Holy Ghost and not experience the renewing of the mind? Is that possible? I'm going to suggest that the two are very, very closely tied. And if we have... If we have the Holy Spirit this morning and we begin to make decisions that are not renewing the mind, at some point, we will grieve the Holy Ghost. And, and those things will begin to work against us. The, the Holy Spirit won't have the, um, the um, free course in our lives that he once did. Turn with me yet to uh, Hebrews 10, another, another verse that, um, I'm sorry, Hebrews 8, verse 10. So this is describing the new covenant. For this is the covenant that I, will, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. I don't think I have to comment on that. The difference between the old and new covenants were that instead of writing the law on a table with stone and people being confronted with that law and having this, their members warring against the law and finding it impossible to keep the law, now God writes that through the work of the Holy Spirit and the regeneration of, of, of our lives. He writes it on our very hearts, and now we have that ability to keep a law that was once impossible to keep. All right. So now I'd like to give us a couple tests that will help us determine the soundness of our minds. Number one, test number one is very, very simple. Are you born again? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And I believe that includes our minds. Did you know that it is, it is very possible to be born into a Christian home and never be a Christian? Very possible. Did you know that it's even possible to go through instruction class and be baptized into the church and not be a Christian? That's possible, too. Did you know that it's possible to become married and have children and not be a Christian? It's even possible to be ordained as a minister in the church and not be a Christian. I'll never forget the story that um, um, <clears throat> Richard Herr gave once upon a long time ago. He was involved in an ordination, and two men were named, and they went to, to do the interviews and the one man said, I won't go through. And he said, now, wait a minute, why not? He said, I'm not a Christian. And Richard thought he was just putting on. And he said, no. He said, I, I don't know what it's like to be a Christian. Now, I hope that's a rare occasion. But my point is, it has happened, okay? And so the, the, the point is, of all of this is that if we are not born again, if we cannot solidly and affirmatively 
Answer that question. We will not have a sound mind. It is impossible. Our decisions that we make will be puzzling to those that are born again, to those that are around us that who are. Our trumpet will be giving an uncertain sound. We will find the pull, the lure, the glitz, the glamour of worldly wisdom to be strong in our lives. And we will find ourselves caving into that repeatedly. And ultimately, unfortunately, we will be confused people when what we really need is to become new creatures in Christ. That is the beginning of soundness of mind. Psalm 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and good understanding, or we could probably put in there a sound mind, have all they that do his commandments. Number two, is my interest and frame of, refer- frame of, ref- frame of reference that I make my decisions from, is that earthly or heavenly? Paul says to the Philippian church, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things, or that could be read, who are mentally disposed and interested in earthly things. And then he goes on to say, for our conversation is in heaven, from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would turn to Hebrews 11 and read that and ponder that, you would find a lot of people that the Hebrew writer lists there that put the celestial above the terrestrial. Paul tells the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world blinds the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. I cannot make sound choices and decisions if I am primarily earthly-minded when evaluating situations and issues, no matter what they are. A prime, a prime biblical example is, the, is Esau. Esau, the, the, the Hebrew writer, calls him a profane man. And he calls him that because he sold his birth, birthright for a pot of vegetable soup. Now, in the day that, that Esau did that, he said, it's not going to do me any good because I'm going to die. If I don't have this soup, I'm going to die. And so I may as well just let Jacob have the soup, the soup or the birthright. I'll take the soup. But the Hebrew writer tells us that he regretted that later and that he sought it carefully with tears, but he couldn't find it. He was a man who was very too, too interested in trading what was earthly for that which was heavenly. I'm sorry, he's trading that which was heavenly for that which is earthly. Let me get that right. And so the question I need to ask myself is, can I, am I willing to suffer earthly loss for heavenly gain? You know, I, uh, I'm sure some of you saw this too, but if you get plain news, you probably saw the, the letter that was written from the unregistered church, Baptist church in Russia and Ukraine regarding their situation over there. And, and, I, and that's, that's not part of this talk necessarily. But I had to think of that in relation to 
um, a friend who is not um, of all the persuasions that I am, that we were having a conversation this week about the Ukrainians and how they, they seem to be doing a pretty marvelous job at, at uh, for what they have to work with at, at holding some of the Russian forces back, etc. And he said, it's because they're fighting for their land. He said, Dwight, he said, if somebody came and tried to take your farm from you, you'd fight for it too, wouldn't you? And I said, no, I wouldn't. Oh, he said, I forgot. He said, it's against your religion. I said, well, I said, it might be against my religion, but it's also against my conscience. I said, the Bible says that life does not consist in the abundance of things that a man possesses. So why would I fight for my farm when that's not what life is anyway? And, and I thought of that as I read uh, the, the things that these Ukrainian and Russian Christians are going through. We, we have it really good, don't we? But, but these, these people, from what I can tell, obviously know what their values are. And, and, the, and their prayer is that the war could stop and peace could prevail. But it's not because um, they somehow lost their heavenly view. It's because they realize that there's much evil and wickedness happening, happening with that war over there. So read your Bibles. Read them daily. Assemble with the believers whenever you can and as much as you can. You know, I had to think about that too when I was preparing this message. You know, our forefathers met in woods, in the dark, in the rain. They did whatever they could to meet together with believers. And we sat on pews that are padded with air conditioning and heat and we still can hardly make it sometimes, can we? It's just, it's just, it's just interesting, the, the irony of that sometimes. Witness to our neighbors. We should live lives that are exemplary, that leaves no question in my mind or anyone else's that our conversation is indeed in heaven. If we can do that, our choices will be godly, our decisions will be sound. Test number three, am I allowing myself to be corrupted by deceptive teaching? 2 Timothy 3, verse 8 says, Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do, do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate or disapprove concerning the faith. Now Janus and Jambres are thought to be the magicians that were able to throw their rods down there in front of Pharaoh whenever Moses did and turn them to snakes. And they, uh, they were able to perform a few miracles there that, that, um, that Moses did there in the, in, at first. There came a time they couldn't, but at first they could. So this false religion actually had a power, and they could imitate some of the true. And I would say that that has largely been the case down through the ages, and it describes our day too. We, there's many, many, many false religions out there, and, and quasi-Christianity, I'll call it, that has a semblance of truth. There's some of it that rings true, and there, but there's, there's some of it that doesn't. And it's, it's, it's easy for our minds to be corrupted, as um, Paul tells the Corinthians church. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. We need to be aware of that. False teachers have always been a threat. And today, it's probably easier than ever for them to have uh, um, access to our ears. And, um, and Paul calls them vain talkers and deceivers. 
Are we allowing our minds to be corrupted from the simplicity that is in the gospel? Number four, does poor past experiences cloud our good judgment? Now, now hang me, with me here a little bit on this one. Turn with me to Titus 1 here for a second. There's an example of this in Titus 1, where in verse 10, here's where Paul talks about the vain talkers and deceivers. He said, there are truly many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they have the circumcision. And he talks about them a little. And then he says in verse 14, he says, don't give heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Unto the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. So here we have a, we have a, a, a little... Um, incident here where Jewish fables and commandments of men were turning people away from the truth. And Paul says their minds and their consciences were defiled and they were likely defiling others' consciences and minds as well. We know Jesus had a lot to say on this subject. You can read through the Gospels. You know what they are. Um, There was... um, there was examples. Jesus gave the example of people that um, would withhold, withhold parental duty because they would say, well, this money that I should be taking care of my parents with, that's dedicated to God. And so um, Jesus said, what you end up doing is you make of none effect the, the, the commandments of God because of, the, because of your traditions. That's what he said there. And this was somewhat what was happening here in the, uh, in the early church. There was Jews, Jewish fables being listened to and, and these commandments of men, etc. And it was not, it was, it was corrupting their minds and consciences. And I would say this could be our experience too. If we have experienced bad or at least less than ideal practices in the past somewhere that were normalized, or accepted or promoted as perfectly right for a person who professes godliness or is part of a Christian traditional culture, it can become almost impossible for us to recognize either the sinfulness or at the very least the less than ideal part of certain patterns of practice. Now, now did you get that? I know that was kind of a windy, a windy thing to say there, but I'm going to give you this example. Uh, Brother Davey gave us some church history here in our, in our um, uh, Wednesday evening talks here recently. And one of the things that he mentioned, he said, you know, in the past, there was things that were totally accepted in the Mennonite church that today we would say, how could they have ever done that? Like, what were they thinking? And his challenge to us is, what are we doing today that future generations might look at and say, well, now how could they ever do that? Like, what were they, what were they thinking? And, and that's, that's the point I'm making. Um, fortunately, there's been some of those trends and practices that have been corrected, you know, soundness of mindset in somewhere. But just because something has always been done does not mean that it's right. That doesn't necessarily mean it's right. It could mean it's right, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's right. So you think about that. Do not allow 
something that has been normalized but is wrong to mess with your soundness of mind. But there's another ditch that's just as easy to fall into where we have high priority put on good practice but at the expense of actually knowing Jesus. That's what I was talking about there a while back. You know, being a preacher but never being born again, that's a, that's a very sad state of affairs. When that happens, the reasons and motivations for practices, good practices, are not understood by many and can cause us to struggle to understand the connection of good practice and godliness. And thus the tendency is to hold good practice and good works in suspect. Now turn with me to Titus 3, and this is exactly what's being talked about here in Titus 3, where Titus says, or Paul says to Titus in verse 5, he says, you know, we were saved by the kindness and love of God, not by works of righteousness. And he talks about this. And then he says in verse 7 that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now notice verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I would that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. And see how, see how Paul ties those two together. Apparently there was some struggle there that uh, people were saying, well, you know, the grace of God negates the need for good works. And Paul says, no, it doesn't. He said, be careful. Be careful to maintain that because that is good and profitable unto all men. Do not allow reactionary thinking to compromise sound judgment. All right. Very quickly here at the end, why do I need a sound mind? Number one, the reason I need a sound mind is because human tendency is to succumb, and we're all tempted to this, succumb to groupthink and mindlessly just do things because everyone else is. This is the easiest route to get through life. It requires no exercise of the mind, and we don't have to guard against anything. We'll just look around. Whatever is happening around us, that's what we'll do. God knew this. That's why he told the Israelites in Exodus 23, he said, thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Because he knew the multitudes generally are not practicing what is right. Jesus called it the broad way. He said many, 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 many people find their way onto the broad way. It does not require any thinking. This is why Paul tells the, the Thessalonian church to prove all things and to hold fast to the things that are good. That requires some thinking. Paul tells the Corinthian church, he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. Now listen to how he, he says it in the next verse. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. If we have the mind of Christ, we are going to be able to be that spiritual person who is able to judge all things. John tells us not to believe every spirit, but to try the spirits. These exercises is what will build a godly, healthy, personal conviction in all of us that calls us to be sensitive to worldly inroads into our lives and practices that are not conducive to the maintenance of godliness. 
We need to be thinking. We need to be testing. We need to be proving. We need to be girding up the loins of our minds, as Peter calls it. And I would especially encourage us as fathers here this morning. You know, raising children is not for babies. It's not. It's, it's hard work. And the easiest way to do that is to just look around and whatever the lowest common denominator is among your, your children's peers, that's where we'll draw the line. I'm just going to ask you this. Is that wise? Will that produce strong, godly posterity for Jesus Christ to build his church with? I well remember different times when I was young, and I would tell my parents, well, everyone else is doing it. And they'd say, now, if everybody was jumping into the fire, would you do that too? It's a good test. Just because everyone else is doing it does not mean that it's wise. And number two, the last one, we need sound minds because there are many practical areas of life that are not specifically spoken to in the Bible. And we need to be able to discern when a thing or practice is going to take us on a good road or a bad road. Proverbs 22, 3 says this, a, a prudent man or a cunning man, you could say, foreseeth evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. In other words, what that saying is, a, a wise person is always thinking ahead. He's thinking ahead. And, he, and when he begins to smell evil, as it's put in this verse, he says, wait a minute. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to take that path because there's evil on that path. Turn with me to Hebrews 5 yet. The Hebrew writer puts this very well. And uh, I like the way he words it. In Hebrews 5, verse 11. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when, for when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to those who are of full age. Now get this. The ones that can handle the strong meat are those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. A person that is progressing spiritually, should have, his mind should be constantly being, become more sharp. He should be able to understand when a thing is good and when it is not. What the Hebrew writer says is the audience he was writing to said, you're not even close to that. You still need someone to take you by the hand and say, now this is right and this is wrong. When you're actually at an age where you should be able to look at a thing and say, no, this is right, that is wrong. You know, in, in a physical way, we do that. We change our oil and our cars because we have sound minds to know that if we don't, we're going to be doing an overhaul way sooner than we want to. So it's a sound mind. We do preventive maintenance. And that's where I believe the Bible calls us to soundness of mind, that we are people of prevention, not people that are constantly responding to problems because now we have this blow-up that we have to deal with. 
in our personal lives, in our churches, etc. We're interested in looking ahead and avoiding issues that are coming down the road. All right, two verses, and then we're going to close. One from the old, one from the new. Isaiah 26.3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. You want peace this morning? Stay your mind on, on God. Trust in him. And now, in Philippians 4.7, the same idea, just worded differently. And the peace of God. Do you have peace this morning? Do you have the peace of God? Which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. 